Hello, welcome to One for My Bookshelf. My name is Elle, and this is the podcast where I talk about the books that I read. Specifically, that is usually fantasy books. And in this episode, I'm going to be talking about everything that I read in June. So I started the month by reading Threads That Bind. So this follows Io, and she and her sisters are descendants of the Greek fates. So the fates in Greek mythology are three sisters, and each one had a specific ability relating to fate. So one had the ability to spin fate threads, another had the ability to dispense them, and the third had the ability to cut the threads of people's fates. In this world, those abilities are inherited, and Io has the ability to cut fate threads that connect people to the things they love and to life itself. Io uses her abilities as a private investigator, and when she's on a job, she discovers that somebody is abducting women and maiming their life threads and setting murderous wraiths loose in the city. I'm a mythology fan, so I had thought this would be a book that I would really enjoy, but I'm saddened to report that I did not, for a number of reasons. Most of what put me off was the setting. It's a grim, dark, urban, corrupt city, very dystopian-esque, kind of like magic-prevalent Gotham. It has stereotypical corrupt gangs and mobsters and corrupt organisations in power. And the world-building is very vivid, but I'm a big mood reader and this place was so grim, it wasn't a place that I liked. It wasn't a place I was enjoying being a part of or inhabiting, so as a consequence I didn't want to be there. And I didn't like being in the place the pages were pulling me into, and that pretty much killed the enjoyment of the book for me. There was also the fact that I didn't really like the characters either. The concept of the powers was interesting, and that was the original draw for me, but the characters themselves I didn't end up fostering any kind of love for. All in all, I struggled to get into it, not liking the characters, not liking the world, That's all personal taste. The plot and the world building is strong. It's an interesting fantasy thriller dystopian mix-up. And objectively, I would go three stars for Threads That Bind. It wasn't my taste, but it could easily be someone else's. The next book I read was Inkblood Sister Scribe. Inkblood Sister Scribe follows Joanna and Esther, who are two half-sisters who must protect their family's collection of magical books as their ancestors have done for generations. But the girls have become estranged, Esther now lives in Antarctica, uh, fearing being hunted by some unknown person, and Joanna hides away in her house in Vermont, protecting the books. There's another main character, point of view character, uh, Nicholas, who writes magical books in a great library in London. It's a fates collide, mysteries bring them together type situation, and it was slow. It was glacial to the point where I was honestly bored. There is just so much reflecting and looking back into the past, and so much honestly unnecessary description. There are sentences like, Joanna liked dusting the books. It was satisfying to sweep the soft, luxurious paintbrush across their covers, along their spines. It reminded her of brushing Esther's hair. It's that level of detail that is just, I found extraneous by this point, because not much had happened, or the plot was just moving so slowly that I wanted to get to something more exciting, and I'm getting passages describing how she's dusting books. And at that point, I didn't care. I really, really didn't. I just wanted to get to something more exciting happening. The writing, though, it has to be said, is extremely lush. There was just too much description. The the amount of detail is extreme, and though the descriptions are gorgeous, at times the extent of them really made the pace drag. There was a passage, I think, a revelation or a personal realisation in one chapter that began with the cat being fed and a description of its meal. It felt like it possibly could have gone through another round of edits to cull out anything that was unnecessary that did end up slowing that plot down. The characters had extensively expanded backstories, and yet I'm sad to say the characters still fell flat for me. Esther was probably my favourite. She is spirited and her story about being hunted down I found the most interesting and it was certainly the one that kept me reading in the beginning when I was sort of tempted to put it down. I found Joanna a bit bland and Nicholas had a lot of stereotypes woven into his character that made him less interesting to me. The pace picks up in the second half but this is largely character examination and relationship examination, less exciting engaging plot. 
I think had it been shorter and some of those unnecessary descriptions cut out, it would have moved things along a lot faster and I would have been a lot more engaged. As it is, I sort of had to, it felt like I was trudging through the book. After that, I did a reread of Six Crimson Cranes and The Dragon's Promise. Six Crimson Cranes is the story of Princess Shiori. All six of her brothers get turned into cranes by Shiori's stepmother, Reikama, and Shiori gets cursed as well, and for every word she speaks, one of her brothers will die. So she sets off to break the curse, and throughout the duology, she has to deal with dragons and demons to protect the lives and the happiness of herself and those she loves. It's a very modern fairy tale aesthetic that's so easy to get into. It leaves me with that magical enchanting feeling, the kind that I always love to read for. My personal little pet peeve, and this will mean nothing to someone who hasn't read the book, but will make sense to someone who has, is that I will never not find the bowl on the head a weird choice and a way to go about concealing Shuri's identity, but the rest is magical enough that I can just go with it. So this duology is dragons and curses and quests and talking paper cranes. It has lovely world building and really wholesome themes. It's well paced and it's easy to get on board with Shuri's quest to forge her own identity, to make her own choice for marriage and her future and save her family. The romance is extremely sweet and gentle as well. I personally love wholesome magical fairy tale-esque stories and slow soft burn romances and true fantasy worlds and I love a protagonist out to fight for the right to forge her own path. I have so much love for these books. I cannot wait to read Elizabeth Lim's next book, Her Radiant Curse, which is a sort of spin-off prequel set in the same world featuring one of the characters from the original duology and fleshing out their backstory. Then I read Stars and Smoke by Marie Lu. This was a bit of fun. It's a spy romance that follows Winter Young, a superstar global Chinese-American pop phenomenon who is still grieving his stepbrother. And Winter is approached by a secret organization for a mission to take down an infamous criminal. Uh, the other point of view character is his partner, Sydney, and she's a sharp-edged spy who joined the agency to start from scratch to build a new life. She is a recovering kleptomaniac and is already prejudiced and unhappy about what she views as babysitting a pop star that will be a detriment to her own career. Honestly, it is possible to poke holes in this if you really wanted to, but it's so much fun, if extremely far-fetched, it's still so much more enjoyable just to get on board and go with it. It's fast-paced and has a lot of good, rich elite tropes. There's good character development and sensitive, well-handled depictions of grief and childhood trauma. The romance wasn't a standout, it is enemies to lovers, but overall I enjoyed reading the book. The next book I read was The Grimoire of Grave Fates, and this is an anthology, and it was one of my most anticipated releases for this month. This book is set in a magical academy where there has been a murder on campus, and the students have to solve it. 18 authors contributed written chapters, and there are 18 students who each get their own chapter, and as a whole, the clues are puzzled out through the course of the events each student witnesses and the deductions they make. Magical Academy and Murder Together is like catnip to me, I want so badly to be able to say that it is four stars. Honestly, it's probably only three, and I can't, in good reading conscience, give it an extra star just for being set in a magic school. It was a good read, but I wanted more. The murder mystery read more as the B-plot, the background, for just telling the stories of the individual characters at a magic school. What it does well is characterization and diversity. It is one of the most diverse cast of characters I've ever read, and there's a prominent queer and transgender rep and it's very well and deftly represented on page. The trouble is that every 20 or so pages, there's a new point of view that had to establish a new character, a unique magic system, a backstory, their relationship to the victim and the other students. So it gets hard to remember and keep track of everyone. Also constantly setting up and fleshing out the characters, stymies the pacing at points. 
looking back, parts of the first half of the story don't end up having much to do with the mystery at all, and many of the early plot threads either turn out to be red herrings or largely inconsequential. Also, constantly needing to establish each character's stake in the murder also meant it got a bit annoyingly repetitive at times, as certain information was relevant to every single character, so they all had the same point of view on the same person, so every chapter we had to reread all the reasons why this person was the worst. The antagonist was also rather flat. It's clear why they were hated, but there wasn't any nuance to it. Nothing surprising or intriguing with that character occurred at all. The setting was unique though. The authors got creative with the world building, with everything from the magical abilities and the creatures to the concept of the school itself. It ended up being enjoyable due to the characters and the setting, but light on the plot and not a particularly tightly woven or mind-blowing murder mystery. So good on the fantasy, but average on the murder. The next book I read was For the Wolf, and I read this because it's by Hannah Witten, and last month I read The Foxglove King, also by Hannah Witten, and I quite liked that, so I wanted to give, I wanted to try some more of her writing. For the Wolf follows Red, who has one purpose as the second daughter of the Queen, and that is to be sacrificed to the wolf in the wood, and that is in the hopes that he will return the world's captured gods. For the Wolf sounded like a brilliantly dark, creepy fairy tale, but For the Wolf was so incredibly slow. I liked Red as a character, she's haunted and feisty and I liked her protective sister Neve, who got a few interlude chapters and the wolf character himself started off with potential owing to his mysterious background and his dark, brooding, withdrawn air. But unfortunately I got progressively less attached to the characters as it went on. Once the book gets into the wood it's the same thing over and over. Red don't do that, Red does it anyway. Red don't bleed here in the wood, it's dangerous, and Red manages to bleed in the wood constantly anyway. The stakes felt like they dropped away because the supposedly deadly dangerous stuff was happening over and over and it was barely having an impact, and it wasn't clear why. Not much was clear at all. The workings of the magic were very vague, how blood and magic were entwined and how they differentiated, and why it worked differently for certain people in the book, and then why it works differently for the same person in different situations. A lot was set up in terms of the background of the world and there were many mysteries established surrounding the reasoning for the woods and the sacrifice, but too little of it was explained. And I think it's all well and good for a book to be part of a duology, but I still think the first book needed more resolutions to feel satisfying. The atmosphere is strong though. It's cursed forests and crumbling estates and wolves and creepy legends and classic, foreboding, dark, creepy wood fantasy. It's slow burn through and through, from the romance to the plot to the character development. The start is intriguing, the middle fizzled out. The end does pick up the intrigue again though. I think anyone looking for a really slow burn, atmospheric book might find more enjoyment out of this than I did. The next book I read was Five Survive by Holly Jackson. And I read Five Survive for the same reason as I read For the Wolf, and that being that I liked the author's other books. Holly Jackson wrote the A Good Girl's Guide to Murder series, which I loved. Five Survive is a standalone. It follows 18-year-old Red, who goes on a road trip with her friends. The RV breaks down in the middle of nowhere, and they realise it's not an accident. There's a sniper in the dark that's watching them, and one of the group has a secret that the sniper is willing to kill for, and the group has to work out which one of them is the target, and why, and then how to survive. It's a lot of tension, and fighting, and who should die, and whose secrets are worth killing for. I didn't enjoy it as much as the author's previous books. I admittedly hated everyone but Red, and I only kind of liked Red. It's very fast-paced and it takes place over a single night. The vast majority of the narrative, around 80%, is dialogue, so that also contributes to the fast pacing, but I still found it getting dull, mostly as the characters were so unlikable that I didn't particularly care what happened to them. It's 
Unfortunately, not that hard to tell where it's going either. It's a locked room type mystery, and it's mostly arguing and drama, and in the end, I just wanted to like it more than I did. I also read A Spark in the Cinders by Jenny Elder Moak, and this is a retelling of Cinderella from the oldest stepsister's point of view. It starts after Cinders is often married, except it gives a heavy dose of realism to just how that happily ever after would supposedly work, because Cinders has spent her day sweeping floors and has no idea how to run a kingdom. Cinders and her prince are floundering, and there's risk of a coup, so they approach the oldest stepsister, Arilyn, who was educated and prepared for a life of court politics and machinations. Arilyn teams up with a lady knight called V, and they go questing for a blade that legend says could be the key to save the kingdom from destruction. I loved Arilyn as a main character. I loved reading her thoughts and views and her internal monologue. She is scathing and cynical and practical and blunt and sharp, and I love those traits in a main character. As the novel is written from her point of view, it makes it so fun to read this disparaging, scathing viewpoint of the situations that unfold. She is mistrusting and flawed and scarred and carrying deep childhood trauma that stem from her mother's mistreatment of her. Uh, The book examines the effects of how she was conditioned and raised to believe, think and act, given that she was taught to see cruelty as a strength and as a means of protection, and taught to be conniving and deal with machinations instead of genuine relationships as a child. Throughout the book, Arilyn is unlearning negative behaviours and thoughts and dealing with the shame she has internalised for herself given the way her mother dismissed her worth and worked to make Arilyn feel like a failure. Arilyn is starting to accept that she deserves and is worthy of love and friendship and not to see those things as a weakness and not to see herself as a failure. She gets a great character arc, great personal growth and there's very wholesome found family trope in this book. V the knight is grumpy and sassy and sharp-witted in her own right and a great counter for Arilyn to play off and their interactions are full of sort of witty scathing banter that leads to some light humour. I would advise to tread carefully and know your own bruises because it is a sensitive look at the effects of having a controlling parent, specifically an emotionally abusive and withholding mother. The book examines the weight and hurt and cost of parental expectation and what it's like to struggle against that, as well as struggle against one's own expectations that stem from that. Overall, it's about finding yourself and finding who you want to be separate from a parent's negative qualities and battling against the voices and instincts that a parent can instill in you. It's about finding self-worth and the perception of failure and fighting and choosing to overcome a negative internal voice inflicted by parental mistreatment and belittlement. It's about choosing to be different from your parents, choosing not to define yourself by them. There are plenty of cliches and traditional fairy tale quest tropes in the plot. There are cheesy, dread-inspiring names of places that have to be passed through to accomplish this quest, places with creepy legends attached to them. There are cliches like don't step off the path and going to locations that have no magic and guardians or challenges they have to overcome at each location. My one complaint is that finding where to go always seems a little easy for them. Answers just conveniently appear or fall in their laps and it never feels truly difficult. Some lines are a bit cringy, and there's a fair few conveniences that help them along, but I don't... I stopped caring because I love the characters, and I loved reading Arilyn's voice, and I enjoyed the character interactions and their developing relationships. It was empowering and heartfelt, while still being amusing and entertaining, and I thought it was a great book about claiming and reclaiming yourself and becoming who you want to be. Then I read Emily Wilde's Encyclopedia of Fairies by Hannah Fawcett, and this is... A book in which the main character Emily is a professor who travels to a small town in the far north to study fairy folklore. She discovers dark fae magic as she hoped for her research but in the process she also discovers friendship and love and as a researcher of fae folklore the book reads like you're reading Emily's journalistic field note entries 
which as a concept I love and in practice was something I didn't love nearly as much as I thought I would. I cannot claim enjoyment of this book. It took me five months to finish it. I first picked it up in January shortly after it was published and I couldn't get into it when I sat down to read it then. Since then I've tried continuing on so many times and I just kept picking it up and putting it down again. I finally managed to finish it this month though. I have loved the author's other work. She creates such beautifully magical, atmospheric fantasy worlds and she writes wonderful characters. This just unfortunately wasn't for me. I found it too slow and too meandering. Mostly I think the scholarly inflection wasn't to my taste. It's quite impersonal and detached. This book is a cosy fantasy with low stakes and light romance and lots of fey magic. I liked Emily's character in her academic inclinations and her narrow, single-minded focus, her surliness and her independence and her withdrawn nature. She's not one for small talk and she struggles a bit with interacting with other humans and with romance, which is a trope that I did love, that I do usually love, and I loved in Emily, I just didn't love the book itself. The love interest is irritating to her at first and the book becomes this really sweet slow burn romance and I wish I'd liked it more. I like all the components individually and conceptually. Emily is 100% my sort of character and I love the field journal idea but I just could never, unfortunately, for whatever reason, get entirely sucked into this book. I also read Silver in the Bone by Alexandra Bracken and this is the first in a new series that is inspired by Arthurian legend. In this world, a minority of people know that Arthurian legend is real and there is magic and curses and sorcerers in existence. The main character, Tamsin, her brother is cursed and Tamsin ends up teaming up with her enemy on a quest to locate a ring that could free her brother and that quest gets her tangled up in a plot full of dark magic. I really like Alexandra Bracken's lore, her book lore, so much I keep hoping she'll change her mind and make it a series, but unfortunately I didn't enjoy Silver in the Bone nearly as much. It's lengthy, but it started strong. There's great setup with the world and magic and characters' backstories and relationships, and then in the middle, the plot stalls. Once we get to the place it's going, the plot starts to drag while there's a multitude of conversations happening between the main character and all the supporting characters, and it causes the momentum of the plot to really start to drag. There's the need to develop the side characters, but as the book is written from only one point of view, that means the main character has to be set up to go and talk to everyone to find out more about them so the reader can learn all the backstories of the side characters and what was previously fast-paced and deadly urgent in the plot then begins to get drawn out while in- and essentially put on hold while the main character goes to have all these conversations with everyone. It's interesting to get all the character information and they've all been so well developed but there's just so many side characters that there are so many conversations that need to be had and with all the slower interaction scenes it comes at the expense of keeping the momentum and the urgency of the situation. It gets hard to remember that a deadly danger is literally on their doorstep. Also having read it I have a minor peeve with the title because once a certain piece of information is relayed it becomes very clear where the book is going and it could have been just more of a mystery. Those are such small things overall though and it's a very vividly built world with a unique plot and well-developed characters and overall I did have a good time reading it. I also read To Kill a Kingdom by Alexandra Christo and this is a Little Mermaid retelling with dual point of view. There's Lyra, a siren princess and daughter of the Sea Queen who is known amongst the humans as the Princess Bane and that is because of all the princes whose hearts she has ripped from their chests. There's also Elian a siren killer and sailor adventurer. He's the prince but does not want to be bound to the throne he is set to inherit. 
He's set on protecting the kingdom, which means putting a stop to the prince's bane, and Lyra goes to claim Elian's heart, and then their paths collide. This is a very romance-heavy fantasy. It's the romance at the forefront of the book more than the plot. Usually I like my fantasy light on the romance, but this was enemies to lovers, it was slow burn, with the developing relationship between them that grew through sarcasm lace banter, and sarcasm lace banter is my favourite in a budding relationship. Both are anti-heroes, and I also love a morally questionable main character. Lyra is murderous and bordering on a straight-up villain, and Elian has plenty of blood on his hands too. There's also a band of lovable secondary characters aboard the ship, and there are lots of fairy tale elements. It's simple, but really striking and compelling world-building. The one problem I did have was that I found the voices of the main characters a bit similar. So their internal monologues had the same rhythm and tone and often inflection and pace and at times when it was an observation of something occurring in the present I had to check whose point of view I was reading because it really could have been either of them. Elian also ended up a bit of a damsel in distress in the third act by virtue of not having much to do with the great final battle. I actually could have done with some more violence and near murdering of each other in the beginning considering their polar opposite goals but I admit I wish there was a direct sequel to this. There's another book in the world, but it follows different characters. And this has such great world building and was a unique twist on the original Little Mermaid tale that it stands on its own. And I have a soft spot for high seas adventures. There were strong character arcs, um, vicious and morally grey characters, sharp, ruthless characters are always my favourite. And I enjoyed this far more than I expected to. And bonus points because the book has a killer first line. I also read One Dark Window by Rachel Gillig. In this book, the main character Elspeth has the spirit of an ancient monster trapped in her mind. She calls him Nightmare, and he protects her, but it comes at a severe cost. This was my this book was my biggest surprise of the month because I absolutely loved it. The world is wonderfully dark and gothic and sinister. The town is surrounded by this eerie mist of dark magic that keeps everyone trapped and cut off from the world. Anyone in this town infected with the magic is believed to be evil or dangerous and is sentenced to death. The magic in this world is destructive and corrosive and feared, and it extracts a steep price on those who have it. Elspeth has kept her infection, her magic abilities, hidden since childhood, and she's kept the presence of Nightmare in her mind a secret. The book had this brilliantly atmospheric, sinister tone that was dark and alluring and beyond captivating to read. I just loved the magic in this world, both the relatively safe kind that still extracts a price, and the more sinister, slow, poisonous, destructive kind of magic. It's the magic comes at a price trope, but really dark and twisted. One kind of magic stems from these providence cards, which are 12 types of cards with varying rarity based upon the value of the gifts they give, and people can wield them to give them certain abilities. It's a very simple but unique system, and I think it was such a brilliant idea, and I love thinking about it, and I love seeing both types of the magic play out. I fell in love with Elspeth as a main character. She had my favourite kind of character arc. Because of her infection, she's learnt to survive by keeping her walls up and pushing the world away. At the start, she's mistrusting and withdrawn, and she keeps herself isolated for fear of what she is and fear of what others will do to her. She's still got plenty of bravery and stubbornness, but she's haunted by the monster in her own mind. Nightmare, the monster in Elspeth's mind, he's excellent. He's sarcastic and grumpy and perversely caring in his own half-sweet, half-eerie way. There's a brooding, petulant love interest, and the book sees their budding relationship eventuate into a cautious, slow-burn romance, which are my favourite kind. The plot was smooth and really darkly enchanting and twisting, and it all came together at a satisfyingly and beautifully haunting, intriguing pace. Events and learnings and new information, they unfold effortlessly, really smooth and organic, and it happens at a satisfying pace that both sated and fueled my curiosity at the same time. 
The writing was really lush and atmospheric, and it builds with this mesmerizing darkness that keeps growing. This was an easy five-star read for me. It was one of my favorite stories. I would reread it in a heartbeat. I can't wait for the sequel. This is an excellent dark fantasy romance. It has found family, a fascinating magic system, atmospheric world building, highwaymen and rebels, political scheming, court intrigue, quests and action, and just pages bleeding with gothic ambience. Another book I read was Four Found Dead by Natalie D. Richards. And in this book, Joe and her friends who all work in a movie theatre, they get trapped in a defunct shopping mall with a killer and they all have to try and survive. I really enjoyed this. It's a fun take on a locked room thriller, using the shopping centre as a background as the killer hunts them down and they try to escape. There was a fair bit of convenient misfortune that conspired against them to help build the tension. It was really an astounding run of bad luck, which realistically probably wouldn't be plausible. Like, for example, no one having their phones because they all get locked away, and every single person's parents not having a reason to come looking for them on the same night, and there were no windows they could just break in this entire shopping mall. Surely there are external-facing shop displays or something that they could have just broken out of. There also every single access point was blocked for varying reasons, and all the internal phones and alarms were down. It was just a lot of... It did feel a bit contrived, the amount of bad luck they had to have for this to take place, but... I enjoyed what was taking place, so I just went with it. Honestly, it might have worked better if it was just set in a time period before phones were commonplace. Anyway, I don't care because I enjoyed it. It was a light-hearted thriller, if that's possible to say. Fun and thriller don't really feel like they should go together, but they did here, and I read this in one go on a Saturday, and I had a great time all the while. Another book I read was The Bone Shard Daughter by Andrea Stewart, and this follows several people, but most predominantly the Emperor's daughter, Lynn, whose father refuses to acknowledge her as heir to the throne, so she sets out to prove herself by mastering the forbidden art of bone shard magic. The second of the main characters is Jovis, a smuggler who is searching for his lover. He survives a devastating event on his journey, and he meets a strange creature with a mysterious power, and picks up an adorable animal companion. There are five point of views in total, and I say that Lynn and Jovis are the main of the main characters, because Lynn and Jovis, their point of views are written in first person, while the others are written in third person. The reason for that, I don't really understand. It just is. Lynn and Jovis had the most gripping point of views, in my opinion. There is a very unequitable spread between how many chapters each character gets, though. Nevertheless, I enjoyed the book. I read it quite quickly. There are political mysteries, there's espionage, there's commentary on class divisions, there are themes of revolution and justice, identity and love and family. It's intriguing, there are multiple mysteries unfolding at the same time. It does have a cliffhanger ending in the world, and it ends when two characters only just meet, which is really frustrating. So I went straight on to the second book. It's a three-book series, and I don't know why, but the sequel put me into a reading slump. Reading usually is my procrastination, but I started doing my procrastinated tasks to procrastinate continuing reading the sequel, so I took that as the sign that I should put it down, and I left off about halfway through. I might go back to it at some point in the future, but as of now, I haven't really felt like it and I just see no point in forcing myself to continue to read it when reading is meant to be purely enjoyable, at least for me. I struggled to find something that I felt like reading after that, but eventually I picked up A Lesson in Vengeance. It was a completely different mood, tone, aesthetic, and it was the perfect cure to my reading slump. A Lesson in Vengeance follows Felicity, who returns to this old ivy-covered boarding school after the death of her girlfriend at the school a year prior. There's a new girl, Ellis, in her girlfriend's old room, and Ellis is a mysterious writer who asks Felicity for help with her next novel. The school history is steeped in witchcraft and murder, and Felicity had previously been quite obsessed with it, 
and as much as she tries to leave it behind, disturbing things are happening and she finds herself getting drawn back into the occult. This is so very atmospheric. It's dark academia, creepy old boarding school, libraries and books and wintry woods and as a mood reader who is often in it for the atmosphere of worlds, I enjoyed this book. Objectively, the plot wasn't the strongest. There are five murders that set the backdrop that keep getting referenced but never get properly resolved or addressed, and it is possible to pick where the book is going. The characters are pretentious and snobby, and the side characters, they start to get interesting then also get largely dropped. That being said, subjectively, like I mentioned, I was in it for the atmosphere, and I got all the atmosphere and rich, vivid world building I wanted. It drew me into the pages and back into reading, and I finished it in a day. It's a gothic thriller, a light thriller with twists of literary fiction and horror. Think elbow patches and library study sessions and blazers and coffee and thesis discussions mixed in with murders and hauntings. It's dark and mysterious and intense and the writing is quite lush and eerie. There's an unsettling haunting nature to the story. Content warning for this one, it deals heavily with mental health and depression. So if you're considering it, check the trigger warnings and know your boundaries. I did wish there was more witchcraft, but I enjoyed it, and though a large part is attributed to the, just the fact that I enjoyed disappearing into an old, ivy-covered boarding house near the woods, and being in this world of libraries and coffee-fueled study sessions, and just letting the atmosphere sort of carry me away. The last book I read this month was Sing Me to Sleep by Gabby Burton, and this follows Sersha, who is a siren living in a kingdom where sirens are executed. Sersha lives in hiding, trying to keep a low profile until she's forced by blackmail into taking a job as a bodyguard to the prince, which puts her and her family, specifically her sister, for whom she would do anything in the world for, um, it puts all of them in danger. Sersha is a fierce, morally grey character, and again, I love a morally grey character. She is headstrong and she struggles with accepting herself, which is a character arc I do tend to adore in main characters. The world building is really strong and immersive. The book is set in a unique kingdom that is built on prejudice and segregation, and it addresses issues of classism, which is done through, I guess what you would call in this book, a look at speciesism. Essentially, the characters are discriminated against by virtue of none other than what their species is. There are examinations of worth, self-worth, worth based on your skill, worth based on just who your family is and your background. There's plenty of political intrigue, it's fast-paced, and it is so easy to get lost in. The compounding mysteries just keep it moving. The romance didn't really stand out to me, but there is a budding romance, though I'm happy to say this book is more fantasy with romance and not romantic fantasy. I usually do prefer books where the fantasy is part of the plot or a side plot and not the forefront of the plot. Overall, this was really easy to read. The story just flew by and I am loving that we're getting more complex, morally grey, sharp-edged girls in books these days. So that is everything I read this month. I hope you enjoyed listening and maybe got a few recommendations or books to add to your TBR out of it. This is quite long to record, so I'm going to wrap it up here. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you are enjoying whatever you're reading, and I'll be back soon with another episode to talk about some more books.